school. Welcome back to The The Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories about ordinary people that became extraordinary founders despite lack of connections, money, or... Or experience. Or experience, that's right. That's right. You forgot? Forgot, yeah. I've only done this at least 50 times already. Terrible memory. All right, today on the show, we have Kyle Bergman of Swoveralls, which are super comfy sweatpant overalls, which I really want to wear now. And he he's has, actually sitting right in front of us wearing right. his overalls. He's always I sporting them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, we're going to try them on afterwards. And uh, he has an incredible story. In just one year of running the business, he has already hit $230,000 in sales. He raised over $100,000 on Kickstarter. But here is where the story gets really, really interesting. He's been able to do all of this while holding a full-time job at Birchbox, which he actually just recently left. We'll talk about that as well. He is working on his MBA at NYU as well. He's a fitness coach at Orange Theory, and he's on the Israeli national lacrosse team at the same time. So we obviously want to get into how, uh, Kyle, you've been able to accomplish all of this while doing so many different things and getting to a solid six-figure business at the same time. Uh, And congratulations on going full-time. Thank you. So, Kyle, I know this story probably started from the womb uh, and you were born an entrepreneur, but we'll skip that stuff. And I know that when you graduated, uh, I want to dig into how this lacrosse thing came about because I don't know if you wanted to be an athlete or you graduated, sorry, yourself getting a job or you knew you were born to be an entrepreneur. So tell us your thought process, your senior year in college, you're about to graduate. What are you thinking is going to happen and what actually played out? So... For me, it actually started when I was a junior, uh, almost to a a fault. I am future-oriented, always thinking into the future, what am I going to do? And as a junior, I was having that classic existentialist dilemma that a lot of soon-to-be college graduates have, what am I going to do with my life? I knew that I didn't want to be a college lacrosse coach. I also knew that I didn't want to go into finance like a lot of my buddies. And so I actually asked my mom what she thought I would be good at. Uh, My mom had a and is having a uh, very decorated career in retail. She's done an awesome job at a lot of companies. And she said, you know, I think you would be good in, in buying as well. The prototypical buyer is 33 and a third percent creative, interpersonal, and a- analytical. And so what is a buyer? What, what do they do? So a buyer, another term for it would be like a merchandiser, um, a procurer of products. And so I threw my hat into the ring at the Bloomingdale's executive training program, and I got in. Around the same time that I got in, I was also asked to try out for, and I made the Israeli national lacrosse team. How do you get asked to try out for the Israeli national lacrosse team? So it's, uh, that's a great question. So there's actually um, a list every year of Jewish All-Americans that was created by this guy. I believe he lives in L.A., And as far as I know, this guy just goes through college rosters, not just lacrosse, and basically looks for Jewish last names or people that look like they might be Jewish. (laughs) And so I was named to that list as a senior. And uh, as a result, I was invited by the program director, a guy named Scott Neese, who started the Israel Lacrosse Association. Um, The Israel Lacrosse Association started in 2011, and it was in 2012 that I was invited to come and play. It was in a friendly match against the Philippines um, in Philadelphia. 
And after that, there were a couple other rounds where you're playing, you're playing with current team members, you're playing with other people that are trying out. Um, and they were starting to form the team that would play in the 2014 World Lacrosse Championships, oh. which is similar to the World Cup. A lot of a question that people often ask me is, how are you able to play for Israel and live and work full-time in New York City? The best way to describe it is similar to a professional soccer player who might play for a club team um, in the English Premier League or in another country, but then let's say their their national team is Ghana, and when the World Cup comes, they go back and play for, for Ghana. So it's the same type of concept. I lived in New York and was expected to play for local club teams and to train and, and be in shape. Nice. So you play lacrosse in college? I played lacrosse in college. In high school and stuff. And yeah. And what did you study in college that made you, you think, positioned to be a buyer for Bloomingdale's? So I started out as a business major, uh, kind of classic, didn't know what I wanted to do. All of my other teammates were, were business majors. And about halfway through my undergrad career, I um, was, was irritated almost with just business classes. It, it seemed intuitive to a degree, a lot of the stuff that we were learning, a lot of group projects, um, and I was frustrated by it. So I transferred to become a psychology major. And psychology fascinated me. And um, fast forward about 10 years, I've become very interested now in behavioral economics and the way that that can um, impact marketing. But we can talk about that a little later. But um, I went into this interview at Bloomingdale's with very little, none, uh, retail background. Hadn't really ever worked at a store, had no buying experience. And I was able to, I guess, convince them that based on my training in consumer behavior through my psychology background, um, I was a good candidate because I was interested in what motivates people to buy and also as a result of what they're purchasing, how you can make future decisions and how that's impacted. And I started out as an assistant buyer in, in luggage and the rest is kind of history. So then how did your story progress from there? You're doing lacrosse, you're at Bloomingdale's. Uh, what was kind of the next step after that? And obviously, how did that possibly lead to you ultimately becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, did you did you consider you were a business major? Did you think you were going to be an entrepreneur? Did you try other ideas before? So overall, what, what happened there? So when I was a sophomore in college, I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia. Um, a teammate of mine and I decided to create a lacrosse club team and a tournament. Uh, we saw space in the market. There were tournaments, but they were charging an arm and a leg for club teams to come. My teammate, my my co-founder, uh, went to a local high school and we knew that we could get the fields there for free. And so we created a tournament. The first year we had about 30 teams come and we each netted a profit of about $3,000. Uh, he then bought me out because he was graduating, was able to focus on it a little more full time. And I didn't really have the focus at that point to do it. But that was my first experience into entrepreneurship. And, you know, at Bloomingdale's, uh, during my career there, then at Birchbox, it was really like a six-year um, hedging experience for me. I was, I knew that I wasn't going to be in corporate my entire life. I, at Bloomingdale's and at Birchbox, I was constantly told to stay in my lane and focus on my specific tasks at hand. I wanted to do more, but I was also learning so much about how to conduct myself appropriately in meetings, how to speak to numbers, maybe more importantly, how to spin numbers um, into your defense. And so I really felt prepared to leave 
Birchbox, again, like hedging. This business was kind of running and at a great run rate. And so it was at that point that I decided to, to jump ship. And, um, I mean, even then, like I'm still coaching at Orange Theory to, to kind of help pay the, the New York rent. Hmm. Absolutely. And even though you're making six figures in revenue, obviously there's a lot of expenses, I'm sure, and you want to reinvest it back into the business. But getting back to your story, so you're you're going through Bloomingdale's at some point you made the move to Birchbox. Uh how did the idea for Swolveralls come about? So around the same time, a friend of mine left Bloomingdale's to go work at Birchbox, um, was saying great things about it, and the men's buying position opened up. Um, Birchbox, uh, e-commerce and subscription platform, roughly 85 to 90% of their subscribers are women. And as a result, their women's buying team is about 12 people. The grooming side of the business is much smaller. And so I was the sole buyer. Um, I had an assistant buyer underneath me. And so that job looked very attractive to me because it was, um, very entrepreneurial within a larger company, but still like kind of a sexier startup company that had pioneered the subscription box industry. Right before I left to go to Birchbox, um, a friend of mine at Bloomingdale's, a coworker, showed me an article, uh, I believe it was a BuzzFeed article, about sweatpant overalls for women. Hmm. And it was about a novelty pair. Uh, it wasn't a collection, wasn't a brand. They looked like denim overalls, but they were made of sweatpant material. I loved the concept of sweatpant overalls, not necessarily that style. And I looked online in vain for a pair for men. Hmm. Um, I've always kind of had an affinity for onesies, you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you saying you own rompers too? I can see you. I can see you. So the, the <laughs> when I basically set up my company on Amazon last July and was ready to launch, the romper went viral on Kickstarter. Hmm. And for a split second, I was devastated. But then I was like, this is just bringing so much legitimacy to the men's onesie market. And it was like... It was great because I believe the market is, is big enough for both. Never thought I'd hear the words men's onesie market on our show. I love this. <laughs> hey, it's 2018. Yeah. Anything is possible. I want to make a note of sort of your trajectory and what brought you here because even a lot of people that listen to our podcast, we are huge proponents of trying different business ideas, becoming a creator as a way to improve your skills. And I think a lot of people take that as, well, I got to start a business like right away when I'm in high school and I'm in college and that's what I'm going to be doing. And I think that's a great exercise, but the reality is that most first time concepts, businesses, they end up failing. And there's nothing wrong with taking a job out of college so you can learn on somebody else's dime, become an expert in a certain industry that can then give you insights that will help you launch a company and help you be more successful at that company. So, okay, you're getting this idea now. You're, I guess, excited. You have an affinity for onesies and overalls generally, and you see an opportunity in the market for men uh, to have these clothes. And what was the next step after that? So right before I I really realized the market opportunity at a larger scale. I was still dead set on just getting a pair for myself. Mm -hmm. Having grown up at Bloomingdale's, I knew that if I found a supplier and made a serious bid for an order, that I could get a sample to check out. There, I would have my sample, and that would be the end of it. Mm. I found a supplier on Alibaba, and we went back and forth for months over negotiating the cost of her to send me a sample. Again, being at Bloomingdale's, I was conditioned that people would just send me a sample for free. Right. And she wanted roughly $150, which is 
laughable now because right. to get like a prototype made, which is what this was, she only had a silhouette, almost a drawing of what men's sweatpants overalls would look like. Um, it would cost at least five hundred dollars to mm. do it in the U.S. And so we went back and forth. I finally got the sample. It was made from one hundred percent terry cotton, and it was fantastic. And that was when I realized this could be something bigger. At the same time, just starting business school at NYU, learning about Amazon's fulfillment services and how I could have all of my inventory in an Amazon warehouse and basically just run the business from my laptop. Hmm. And so what happened next, she sent me a prototype. We went back and forth on changing the design. The straps were a little too thin. The bib was too narrow. There was some weird stitching on it that we had it removed. Um, when we felt good about the product, we launched men's. And so I bought 500. Um, that's that minimum order quantity is actually, uh, unusually small for an overseas order. This was a smaller supplier that could use the business. Hmm. I had leftover money from, uh, business school loans and I used $10,000 to buy about 500 pairs of overalls. Interesting. So that's, that sounds like for, for most people kind of a big risk. How did you have the confidence to make that kind of big purchase? So in one of the classic errors that I think a lot of entrepreneurs make is this is an idea that I had. I think it's a good idea. And because I like it, I think other people will like it. And there was definitely a little bit of that for me. And this was pre-romp him. So I didn't know really what the market was like, but... I was able to use Google's keyword search planner just to get a pulse on seeing if there was anybody else looking for sweatpants overalls on the internet. Again, like at that point, all I had was this BuzzFeed article. Um, an article on BuzzFeed is no joke. I mean, that's huge exposure for the brand. And so I knew that that was getting a lot of looks. At the time, um, about 300 people a month were searching for sweatpants overalls online. That was the market research I did. That was it. And that was enough for me to go into business. Hmm. Now, fast forward about 12 months later, that number has increased on average about 75% month over month. And around 5,000 people a month now are searching for sweatpants overalls online. Um, the cool thing is I am still the only one offering them in a big way. There have been some other brands champion head pair for a little while, like a limited edition um, but there's no one else really doing it yet. And at this point, it's like, I think it's inevitable because it's, it's kind of a new subcategory that um, I think could do well for a lot of brands. Well, so 300 searches a month. I mean, you probably thought about the conversion numbers there. Why was that enough for you to spend $10,000 and jump in? Because there wasn't really an offering. Mm. Um so, so people were searching, but they weren't really landing anywhere. Exactly. And you saw that. Exactly. And the BuzzFeed article gave you some confidence that there's there could be a burgeoning market for this product. So did you, now you had learned about Amazon Fulfillment Center, so you probably thought that's going to be my distribution. In the beginning, before spending the 10 grand, were you thinking about marketing? How am I going to actually get the word out about these swirlwhirls? I don't even know if that's what they were called at the time, but yeah, did you think about your channels? Yeah, so I... Initially, it was like, I'm just going to do this on Amazon. I don't have time to make my own website. I don't really have a third-party fulfillment center where I would be able to ship out of um, my website. Um, I did make a Squarespace page, just like leading people to Amazon, almost like a splash landing page. I started an Instagram account. I started a Facebook page, um, and I started telling friends and family about it. 
And the first piece of success that I had was last October, a softball teammate of mine. I play in um, the Williamsburg Softball League. Softball teammate of mine knew the one of the head guys originally at Thrillist who went on to start Fatherly, Mike Rothman. And she said, uh, I think that, and Fatherly is like a site for, like a blog for young, hip dads. And, he's, and she said, I think Mike would love this. So she emailed me. Mike immediately responded with his editor on copy and said, let's write about this. And that was surreal because I was able to experience firsthand kind of the snowball effect. Fatherly posted the article. Thrillist picked it up. Pop Sugar picked it up. Um, and I started to get a lot of press and awareness about it all organically. Um, and so I, it, it kind of makes me a little uneasy in my stomach thinking back in hindsight how much of a gut decision it was. Like I felt like at the time I was doing my due diligence, but um, the, the Kyle, a year older, is looking back and would have been a lot harder on on the Kyle 12 months ago. Well, actually, that's why they, they say, and we always talk about, let's say, starting a business in college or when you're younger, sometimes when you don't know the risks going in, it's actually better because you're more likely to get started versus yeah. now maybe you wouldn't even get started in the first place. So did you have any sales at all before this sort of press coverage? Uh yeah, I had a little bit. Again, the cool thing was now when people search sweatpan overalls online, like the SEO, like and to this day, the first and second page of Google, everything that's not a sponsored ad is leading to my website or to an article about my brand. Hmm. So immediately once I started that page on Amazon and you like sweatpan overalls was a thing that you could find, people were finding it organically. And I was posting about it on Instagram and Facebook. So I was getting like friends and family sales a little bit, but it started to take off with the fatherly. And I, and I should mention that about two weeks after I launched the men's collection, women started reaching out saying, I can't believe there's not a women's collection as well. And so I went back to my supplier in China and we launched women's about a month after. Oh, wow. What's the distribution of sales men's to women's now? It's about 52% female, 48. Wow. Okay. So more women buy it. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, really quickly, uh, huge takeaways here, by the way. When you got started, you know, a lot of people find it hard to start because they have no idea how they're going to get their first customers. For you, it was all through your network in the beginning, your friends and family. And even the first major opportunity that you got was also through your network, right? Through your buddy on your softball league that uh, happened to be connected to someone that ended up then paving the way for all the exposure that you got. So you have to think about your network and basically use whatever you can and whatever you currently have to your advantage when you're starting off. And you mentioned that you got some early sales. You thought you initially would go just through Amazon. How hard was it to get on Amazon and start selling there? Don't you have to have a certain amount of sales or basically a fulfillment process set up in order to get into their program? It's a good question. And to, I mean, to sell on Amazon's marketplace as um, a seller, you just have to set up an Amazon account and be willing to pay them the monthly fee and set up your products. I, again, like kind of hedging against the whole leap into entrepreneurship. This was something I was essentially trained to do at Bloomingdale's as an assistant buyer, setting up SKUs, um, merchandising an assortment online and, and doing the correct copy and like what what should the price point be those were all things that i was like classically trained in at a giant department store amazon does have a buying team and to 
get involved with them, they certainly need to be interested in it. But I went the kind of the own route where I was um, selling my own product. And so the only, the only, I guess, to answer your question in the short way, you need to set up a business. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I think that when we do the introduction to the show, we always say entrepreneurs who had no experience or money or connections. Uh, I think it's important to note that uh, that doesn't mean that you don't have any experience at all and you don't work to build up a network. You did work to build up a network by participating in extracurriculars, playing sports, doing all this different stuff um, where you did end up having people eventually that could help you. And you didn't have experience in launching a clothing brand, but you got the experience to know what you're doing when thinking about launching a clothing brand. And even though you were never really an entrepreneur before that, aside from that project that you did with the lacrosse team in college, you didn't have any experience as an entrepreneur. So I think it's important to, to note that most people, when they start a business, no one is born with all the experience. No one is born a CEO, but you gain expertise in a certain area, and then you can have a chance of success in that area, I think. I have to ask you, though, you had a business undergraduate business degree. You had some entrepreneurial experience. Why did you decide to get an MBA? So I switched. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. I ended up getting a minor in business because I had acquired enough credits. Again, kind of going back to this theme of of hedging, and uh, there was actually a, a, a TED Talk that I listened to a couple of years ago. I completely forget the guy, but he said that he defined a new formula for intelligence and it was essentially creating the most options for yourself to your point about like being young and almost being like not, not dumb but almost like not knowing any better or not really weighing the risks the financial risks the opportunity cost and time risks i said i can put in the work and i want to get my mba because i know it will only strengthen my own personal brand um I also knew that I didn't want to be a buyer for the rest of my life. Um, a lot of people go on from being a buyer and having incredibly successful careers in retail and, and outside of retail. You definitely don't need an MBA, but I knew that it would make me that much more competitive for any company that I decided to work for. More importantly, the networking opportunity that I knew I would have at a top MBA school like NYU would, would be invaluable um, and actually like my network was fairly limited before I started at Bloomingdale's. The person who I talked about who introduced me to the fatherly guy, I met her through a Bloomingdale softball team that I planned. I got invited to play in the Williamsburg one, and we talked about the end of that story. I had a Facebook video recently get 9 million views, um, and it was on sweatpants overalls, and that was as a result of a relationship that I had through NYU. Wow. And so these are like this is networking that's happening like in real time. How did that video get 9 million views and what was it about? So the video was, I'm sure the people listening have been inundated with these types of videos on their Facebook news feed. Um, it, it has some poppy music. It has text overlay and it's showing a quirky product. So you can probably imagine what a sweatpants overalls version of that would look like. And a friend of mine at business school introduced me to a guy who started a media company specializing in making videos go viral. Um, on one hand, they knew the type of style that worked with people. So I have some videography and, and photography background. I was able to produce my own Kickstarter video. I filmed it, edited it myself. 
um, and I also took a lot of the pictures, this company took my assets and repurposed them to make a viral-esque video. Hmm. What else they were able to do was they had relationships with these massive Facebook pages, and all they had to do was post the video on one page, and it was like pouring gasoline on a small fire. Um, sometimes they hit, sometimes they don't, and in three days, I had over 9 million views and did over $60,000 in sales. Wow. Did you have to pay for them to actually create that asset for you? Yes. Yeah. Do you mind us asking how much that cost or how you negotiated that? Uh, so I, what I will say is that I got a friends and family discount. Okay. Um, but out of respect for the agency, I can't share how much. But you made more back in revenue, so it was obviously a worthwhile investment. It was very worthwhile. Nice. Uh, and then we also found out in the pre-interview that you have some celebs wearing swoveralls, Amy Schumer and Jeff Ross, to name a few. Please tell us how you got Amy and Jeff to wear your stuff. So one of my teammates on the Israeli national team, his older brother is a successful stand-up comedian in New York City. And I've been partnering with them on some marketing initiatives kind of since the sweatpant overall idea took off. I went to them and said, like, I, I know that his brother is a personality, um, an up and coming personality. And so that we could work together and kind of help grow both of our brands together. One day at the Comedy Cellar, I went, he put on some sweatpant overalls and I was going to take some shots of him up on stage fake performing in them, get some good Instagram posts. It was just all kind of a content play. Mm-hmm. I brought some extra pairs with me because for those that know the comedy seller on any given day, anyone could show up. Um, and on that day, Amy Schumer and Jeff Ross both happened to stop by. I luckily had their size or sizes, I should say, and uh, was able to personally hand and, and tell Jeff and Amy about, about the brand and about the product. Well, that's really cool. Um, Serendipitous, but it came through a connection that you had and actually you showing up. We talk a lot about that in our podcast, the willingness to show up. You came to the Comedy Cellar, you asked them to collaborate, first of all. So asking, making the ask, showing up, bringing the extra sizes, all of these it seems almost accidental that you got lucky, but it wasn't luck because uh, you you sort of made it happen. You didn't know what was going to result from this, uh, and it ended up turning into something really cool where you have celebrities wearing your brand, your clothing. I know that you are a solo founder, and you enjoy being your own boss. You enjoy not having anybody tell you what to do, but you do so many things. So how do you manage your time? How do you think about that? Are there any tools and tricks that you use to be effective that way? I mean, kind of a vanilla answer is that I, I live and die by my calendar. Um, I'm very organized on my calendar. Um, I have three separate calendars, actually, that all luckily integrate together. Um, but from a, from a psychological standpoint, I am an introvert, and so I gain a lot of energy by being by myself. Um, I guess you could argue that I am a little bit of a hybrid, though, because I don't mind being the center of attention in certain situations. I spend a lot of time by myself at my apartment working on things. Actually, I kind of blame my parents because I don't really know how to relax. Um, I always need to be doing something. Um, I get a lot of my energy from being alone. I also get a lot of my energy from concepting and working towards a goal. And so, I mean, coaching at Orange Theory, I do it between 6 and 9 a.m. on Tuesdays and then Friday evenings. So it takes a very little portion of my day. Birchbox was a you know, a, a regular kind of job these days where it could be from eight to six or whatever it takes to get the job done Monday through Friday. 
Um, I was happy working on my business on the weekends during class at NYU sometimes. I mean, <laughs> some of those, like the accounting class, I wasn't paying attention maybe as much as I should have. And just constantly moving. And what about now? You know, you just went full time. I'm assuming life is a little bit different now that you have a ton of free time to work in your business. So I understand that you live and die by your calendar, but do you have any processes like in the beginning of the week? Do you set goals for the week outside of the meetings that you already have? How do you know what to work on? Or is it kind of just like whatever comes your way you, and you prioritize as you go along? As my days have gotten uh, become more and more unstructured, I am still honestly figuring out how to be the most effective. It's it's almost like I have this entire pool now to play in and sometimes I'm having so much fun that I forget to come up for water or, or for air, excuse me. And so I, I've, it, and again, going back to my calendar, have put time on my calendar where I take walks around the block and that helps me um, kind of take a high level view at what's important and what I need to prioritize. I am so anti-company right now and process that the idea of having an agenda for the week um it, it just irritates me but i i have millions of post-it notes i'm constantly writing things down that i need to do i have notes in my phone um so i live and die by my lists but having any sort of structure on a weekly basis that would almost be like a like a weekly business review with just myself hasn't happened yet but as I say this out loud, it, it, it's almost inevitable that it needs to happen. What about certain things like marketing activities, right? You have to post consistently on Instagram, all the social channels. Do you just work that into your day-to-day or how do you do that? I don't think anyone is able to really figure out Instagram. I mean, they give you insights on when your audience is most likely to like a picture or something, but it's a rat race right now. And so I am fighting that with kind of my own ambiguity and I post when I like to two to three times a week uh, I mentioned that I do my own photography I have a library uh, I've done about 20 different photo shoots with people in sweatpant overalls over the last year so I'm able to pull images that I have um, and I also gain a lot of inspiration from brands that I think do a really good job of showing their personality on Instagram. My Instagram is really an amalgamation of the things that inspire me that I see out there. That's great. I, and it sounds like you have some core skills to that make this business the right business for you. Uh, you understand branding. You understand the supply chain that goes into a product like this. Uh, you you understand the uh, customer acquisition side and what you have to do as far as building up the brand, building up social media. So that's uh, that's awesome. I'll, I'll make a note here that I think a lot of people that end up becoming successful entrepreneurs are actually not the ones that are planners, but the ones that have an idea and just go for it. And it sounds like that's sort of been your mantra in everything that you've done in life. You kind of just pursue it because you're curious and interested. And I think that's that seems to me why you've been able to do a lot of these cool things. A lot of things that many people don't do in their entire lives, you've done in a very short career. So uh, congrats on that. Thank so- you. What's next for Swoveralls? I mean, you just had a successful Facebook video campaign that gave you basically, I guess, accounts for about a quarter of your sales, right? So are you going to do more of that? Uh, What's kind of on the docket? I know you're not as much of a planner and agenda maker for now, but what are you thinking? No, it's a great question. And 
man, I, I cannot believe that I started an apparel business because years ago, not, not too long ago, I thought that people that started small apparel companies were crazy, mm. especially getting into a sized item. What am I thinking? It's so competitive out there. And you're going into this, this challenge of having to produce new styles, new SKUs, just newness in general on either a seasonal or annual basis. Also, apparel companies are very cash heavy. I mean, the business has been profitable, a little over $230,000 in sales, about $124,000 in gross profit. And the net profit is in the, in the 60s, but all of that has been reinvested back into the company. And I'm not really, I, I don't pay myself right now. I mean, I rely on Orange Theory for that. And going forward, the opportunity to talk to strategic investors is something that I'm going to have to think about because I will need some partners that have more cash. In the short term, I think there's an opportunity to diversify the product mix while my brand has momentum. Within Swoveralls, what that means is creating youth sizes as well as sizes for infants and toddlers. I've had a ton of parents reach out, Hmm. um, as well as the plus size market. Through the crowdfunding campaign, I've had a bunch of people reach out asking for larger sizes, which I don't offer at the moment. Part of that is intentional. More fabric uh, makes the product more costly. And also when I was initially starting out, I did send out a survey seeing what the size run would be. And I stopped it at double XL for men and a size 14 for women. What I found out shortly after that is that size 14 is actually the average female size in the US. So I'm missing out Hmm. on a huge demographic. And so I, what, what I need to do is kind of reassess and wh- where I can invest my money and see where that's going to happen. Also, I mean, sweatpants overall shorts is a thing that I'm going to capitalize on for I was literally going to ask that because I get hot in pants. Yep. I'm yep. wearing pants right now, unfortunately, <laughs> because you're here. But uh, yeah, I was going to ask about shorts. So that's, that's coming up soon. Yeah, so the the overall shorts. I'm actually wearing the the only pair in existence right now, as as we burn oh, cool. in in, uh, in New York City. In addition to that, the brand, my brand, the Great Fantastic. My vision is for it to be more than Swoveralls. The reason why I didn't call the company Sweatpant Overall Incorporated or Swoveral LLC is because I think it can be more. The brand stands for thoughtfully designed products that are cool, functional, and extremely comfortable. And this blend of these types of utilitarian adjectives, essentially, I think is becoming a trend in modern day consumerism. Millennials, uh, Generation Z, and, and even everyone else wants things that can do more than one thing. They want two in one or, or three in one. I was seeing it in the grooming space when I was the buyer. I want a hair uh, face and body wash that can do everything for me. And so the great fantastic is going to try and see what else we can do kind of in that realm. Very cool. Uh, Kyle Bergman, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. How can people find this product? And I think you mentioned a discount code that you can offer to our listeners. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my website is www.thegreatfantastic.co. On my website, as well as on Amazon, you can use the code SWOVI15, S-W-O-V-I-E-1-5 for 15% off. Additionally, 
uh, because we have limited colors and sizes available right now, you can pre-order a pair on our Indiegogo campaign. If you go to Indiegogo.com and search Swoveralls, you'll find us and you can pre-order a pair for just over 30% off um, at $65 a pop. Nice. And I know that you're the only one in existence now wearing <laughs> Swoveralls shorts. Can we get a commitment to get matching pairs from me and Sergey? Absolutely. Nice. We'll do a little photo shoot. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> thanks a lot for coming on the show, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me.